Welcome everybody from around the world. Hello everyone. Welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg and here's what's coming up. I am so pleased and honored once again to welcome Dr. Marvin J. Southard to Commentaries from the Edge. This is our season number two. And for some of you who listened before, and I know he has he's had a very popular episode that we did together in, in December of 2020. At that time, the episode title was The Causes, Costs, and Cures for Our Divisiveness, which of course can still be listened to. But you could say right now today, it's part two. And the reason is because Dr. Southern and I, at the end of our conversation in December 2020, decided that we would visit one another in six months and see actually where we are with divisiveness in the United States. So here it is, summer of 2021. And before we begin to really look at this very important issue of, of divisiveness that many of us feel something has to be done about it. I want to remind everyone that Dr. Marvin J. Southard is the former director of the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, which is the largest public mental health system in the country and where he served with distinction for 18 years. Upon his retirement in 2015, he became the director of the doctoral program of social work at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles in their School of Social Work and had the title of Professor of Practice. His lengthy career as a leader in mental health, not only locally, but in the state of California and really throughout the country, included his contribution to understanding the concepts of mental health recovery and mental illness and mental well being, and definitely contributed to many innovative ideas about how to include spirituality in mental health services and still continues, of course, our good fortune to contribute to mental health services and mental health understanding. So welcome again, Dr. Southard. And so here we are in uh, June, almost July of 2021, six months after we last spoke about divisiveness, where do you think we are? So Karen, once again, thank you for the very kind introduction. And one would have thought that with the, uh, with the pandemic progressing as it did, I think uh, last time we spoke, it was probably in the deepest part of the pandemic. It was. And since then, things have uh, gotten significantly better. And one would have hoped that the divisiveness that was attendant and that was our experience would also have gotten better. But I'm afraid to say that if you uh, attend to the news, to the internet, to uh, familial conversations even, I think if anything, the divisiveness has gotten worse. And so I thought one of the things, Karen, we might talk about today is why it has gotten worse in the way it has. And one of the pieces of that is the natural human 
need to feel that you're in the right. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but that will lead to the need to be right. And what are the, um, the mental health causes and the mental health effects of that need to be right. And then even more important, maybe, what are the spiritual causes and the spiritual effects of an overwhelming need to feel right? And then we can talk about maybe what we can do to ensure that we at least are not a significant part of that problem. By that, you mean each of us personally. Yes, absolutely. Are not contributing to that part right. of the problem, which, which, is, which is really um, could be a very tall order because there's something about the atmosphere that you're talking about, which, you know, as you say, it's kind of a, a human need to feel that you're right. But at the same time, uh, you know, we can, it's almost contagious because if you're in an atmosphere in which everyone is digging in their heels for their particular point of view, it kind of makes you feel like digging in your heels. Absolutely, Karen. So the desire to be not uh, to be right is natural and universal. No one enjoys the feeling of being wrong. And if we feel like we're always in the wrong, it can affect our self-esteem and how we looked at look at ourselves. Of course, society and especially school rewards correct answers and, you know, frowns on wrong answers. So nobody wants to be wrong. So if it's universal and it's natural, what's the problem with it? I've come to think the problem arises when the need to be right becomes reflexive and really compulsive. And it therefore impedes the search for a real or a deeper truth. Because why would I search for more information if I already know that I have to be right? And especially these days, Karen, because... Um, it's a sad fact that no matter how crazy your uh, opinion is, you can find support for that opinion on the internet or on YouTube to prove that you are right after all. So the need to be right is uh, damaging first because it can block access to real truth. And then maybe even more, the need to be right can really be a problem when it starts to impair our relationships. If we come to the position that my need to be right is so important that if you don't agree with me, you must be wrong or maybe even stupid. So that rightness and wrongness is really uh, has both has a very important uh, interpersonal context as well. Oh, so let yes, me absolutely because you you know you had mentioned that actually when we talked six months ago about uh, the interference in a sense of of the media, not not media in the in the large sense, but in the the kind of internet uh, and technology that we have that can support what you're saying can just keep reinforcing whatever you're thinking without allowing you to explore other other opinions which you know somewhere along the line though it seemed wasn't there a, a a human need to be curious wasn't there a human need at some point 
to kind of um, find it more interesting to know what someone else's point of view was before, be, you know, rather than just your own? Sure. I mean, that's part of the solution. But that's that really, Karen, is the question is what causes us to be entrenched before that natural curiosity can take it take its place? And what is happening today in which openness is foreclosed in the tribal connection to what me and my side believes is right. I think that's the problem we're, we're dealing with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I wanted to uh, move on next to a personal confession. In my family, um, arguing and having a uh, opinion was a recreational activity. We could argue and quibble about nearly anything. And uh, as I think I mentioned before, I'm the oldest of five and we kids and actually also my mom would call my dad the man who was never wrong because <laughs> it didn't matter if you backed him into a corner in an argument, he would, he would just laugh and continue saying whatever he said. So the good thing about him is he was good natured about it. The bad thing is he could not stand to be wrong. And I'll give you, to my mind, what was the a difficult example of that. So, uh, you know, us kids and my dad used to always get my mom Mother's Day cards and Mother's Day gifts. Well, one year he forgot. But rather than admit that he was wrong to have forgotten Mother's Day, he, <laughs> he took the position that you're not my mother. Um, I got things for my mother on Mother's Day, but the kids should do everything for Mother's Day, not me. And <laughs> he stuck to that position for years and years. And it's only because he forgot the once. Because uh, later on, I found among my mom's things, all of the Mother's Day cards he wrote beautiful things before he forgot. Mm -hmm. So my dad was a wonderful man, a great human being, but he could get stuck on his need to be right. And he passed some of that on to uh, his progeny. So uh, my personal example is when I was in um, seventh grade, I had a teacher I did not like, Mrs. Tompkins. And so uh, in a history class, Mrs. Tompkins made some kind of mistake, uh, factual error. So I raised my hand and in front of everybody, I correct her and tell her, you're wrong. This is the fact of the matter. So um, Mrs. Tompkins didn't like it and she repeated. And so I said, no, you're wrong. And so I repeated. So the upshot was I was sent to the principal's office where my mom had to come and meet me and explain myself to the principal. And so uh, my mom took my side mostly, but she, uh, because I, in actual fact, I was correct, but she pointed out and the principal reinforced that 
merely being correct is sometimes not enough if you end up embarrassing the other person. So how all that affected me is I did and do have a strong feeling that I need to be right. But I learned from that incident in seventh grade that it's also important to respect other people's feelings, even if you don't particularly care for them. So, Anne, imagine how many times now when, you, you know, you've discussed this again also six months ago about all of us, you know, being in families with various different opinions, being in friendships now with people that we may have been close friends with for decades and suddenly have very differing opinions. And I, I'm just wondering from what you're saying, you know, that that concept of caring more. I mean, here was a, a teacher that you didn't like, a person who really wasn't in your personal life. But I have seen so many instances in this divisiveness that we're talking about in which people who fundamentally cared about each other, you know, uh, maybe even loved one another and still do not care about the other person's feelings and care more about being right. Right. And so that's, that's Karen, what we kind of want to explore today is what are some of the mental health issues and maybe the spiritual issues involved in this persistent need for being right and correct? So sometimes uh, the desire to figure that you are right and the other person is wrong is a way of trying to control anxiety. It's trying to get control of the situation mm -hmm. by making sure that your point of view is is uh, uh, accurate and therefore things are okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. But unfortunately, it never works. In fact, trying to be right all the time, since nobody can do that, produces the opposite effect than what it's intended to. In some way, it's kind of like hoarding, you know, where people want yes. to hoard things so they protect their possessions and then they make their house a trash heap in which none of their possessions are safe. So the, the need to be right can create more anxiety than that which it is trying to um, control. That's a good example, by the way. Yeah, the hoarding. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes the need to be right is a is used as a bulwark against depression, but it doesn't work either. In fact, because you need to be right, you end up isolating yourself. And as we all know, Karen, isolation is really bad for somebody who is suffering from, uh, from depression. And so breaking off relationships and more isolation by the need to be right, reinforces the mental illness and doesn't help it. And then um, it may be what we in the field call reaction formation. You act like you are always right because you secretly fear you're always wrong. And so you can't afford to mm -hmm. admit a little uh, bit of wrongness because then it would be revealed how much you're wrong about. So 
So those are some of the mental health issues that I think we're grappling with, but maybe even more dangerous are the spiritual issues. So I just want to mention before we launch sure. to the, the spiritual issues, I was just reacting to the three, those three aspects that you were talking about. And maybe in particular, the, the, the anxiety and the depression, because, you know, now I think we're getting to something really profound that's going on in the society within the United States. And that is uh, the reports of such a high degree of depression among our population in general, and not to mention, of course, even aggravated more by, by the coronavirus and the, pan, the world pandemic, is the anxieties, a tremendous amount of anxieties in, in a society like ours, which is a very dynamic, constantly changing society. So, you know, it makes it there. That's that's going to be that's really difficult because we're we're walking in in a society in which we have a, a you know pretty high degree of depression already, anxiety already, and now we're we're seeing that what you're saying, which is trying to use the tool of being right to medicate on those two. So, Karen, that's a really good insight. It may be one of the things that helps explain why the pandemic appears to have made the divisiveness worse and not better. You would hope that people under pressure would come together to work out a solution for things, but we haven't seen that. And maybe maybe the issues of, of the depression and anxiety created by the pandemic are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So I was starting to, to think a little bit also about the spiritual dimensions of this need to be right. Every major religious tradition highlights the importance and the centrality of love and compassion in all human affairs. But in actual practice, every religious tradition has at times in its history taken retali retaliation uh, retaliatory action against the other, those people who have the wrong, heretical, different beliefs that, and opinions. And it doesn't take a, uh, an intense student of history to know the damage that has been done and the devastation created by that absolute need to be right. But this isn't just a problem for groups. Each of us in our individual lives can stunt our spiritual growth and development by holding on to the opinion that we are always in the right. And that other side, that other tribe, anyone who disagrees is always in the wrong. And so the rigidity and the inflexibility and the unwillingness to hear and listen, I think are some of the indicators that there are spiritual issues as well as mental health issues mm -hmm. involved when these things um, occur. And that's, you know, that, that is really, um, that's a huge challenge. I mean, it's all part of, it's kind of 
you might say it's all part of the ingredients in the overall subject that we're, you know, we're struggling with within our society and even in, in struggling with it in talking about it, which is, which is to really kind of unwrap, you know, what are these pieces that are, that are persistent in this divisiveness and the fact that six months later, uh, after we began this conversation, were not any better. In fact, most people would feel and agree that that, that would be an agreement that we um, that things are worse in our divisiveness. So this is really a challenge to the United States communities and society. And there's a lot at stake, as you've talked about in the past, for us to find cures to this. So <clears throat> I think that's the next step then, Karen, is to help us think about what's to be done. What are we going to do? And last time, I, I think I referred to Socrates' uh, maxim that we start by know thyself. Yes. And uh, since then, I've also thought that know thyself was one of three maxims that were carved in the Temple of Delphi. It was know thyself nothing to excess and surety brings ruin. Mm. And I, I thought there could, couldn't be three better things <laughs> to guide us. Um, yes. So that's clearly not a bad start, but how do we apply these ideas that surety is, brings ruin, that we need to know ourselves and that nothing to excess. And I think, the starting point part, excuse me, the starting point might be something we talked uh, quite a bit about last time, which is the three power wounds that each and every human being has as a result of being. A, uh, remember, we talked about that since we were infants and we were uh, totally dependent on our caregivers no matter how perfect our parents and our caregivers were, nobody can do it perfectly. So we all have wounds in the area of the three things that infants need to survive. They need safety. They need some sense of control so they know that they get fed and their diaper gets changed. And they need the esteem and affection of other people. So everyone has issues in those areas, but some areas more than others. So for example, I think Karen, last time I told you that uh, in my issue, uh, safety is not a big deal. Uh, I be lax in that area, but I do have a strong need for other people to like me and to get their good opinion and with uh, control somewhere in the middle. So the first starting point might be for each one of us to try to uh, think of where our weaknesses is, are. Do we have a weakness in the area of safety? Is our weakness the need for too much control? Are we concerned too much for what other people think of us? So, so the first step in dealing with conflict with someone who always needs to be right is to examine in our think 
examine ourselves for a moment and think, what is my part in this transaction? Because whatever is going on is involving more than the one person. What's my part in this transaction? And then the next step is to say, is my part that I don't feel safe with them needing to be mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is it that I feel like I'm being controlled? Or is it I feel if they don't agree with me, they don't like me. And so if we can be conscious of ourselves and what our need is in the transaction, that can give us a starting place to have some, if not resolution, at least a safe journey through the transaction. Mm -hmm. So then the next step, okay, once I've identified that in this transaction with this other person who I'm, who from my point of view always needs to be right, what's my part? Is my part in this, my control, my safety or my affection needs? And the next step is then, okay, being aware of that, take a breath and listen to the other person without any comment or judgment. See if you can try to understand their point of view, even where you don't think you can agree with it in any way. Then see if it's possible for you in conversation with the other person to restate their position in the strongest possible terms. In other words, so you're hearing them, but you're not just hearing them, you're trying to improve their argument from their point of view. So if their argument has been a little bit messy, clean it up and see if you can, <laughs> you, you can put it in its strongest possible case. And then check with them. Is, is what I've just said what you're trying to say? And if not, repeat it until you get it right, until they agree that you understand what they're saying. I think I, you agree. I, yeah, I can see that I can see that that could go a long way because just as you're describing that transaction, you know, when someone uh, when someone is showing an effort to understand what you're saying, that in itself is a very uh, caring kind of transaction right there just the fact that you feel that someone really not only is listening, but they actually care about what your opinion is. Right. And then if you could move on to that and ask them if they can restate your position and, you know, you can see if they understand where you are coming from and what you are trying to say and whether they can or whether they can't, then, you can end the conversation by saying, well, that gives us something to think about. And if you have some kind of guess about what your, your partner in conversation, what their power wound is, do they have a need for control? Are they overly concerned about what people think? Are they feeling unsafe? That will help you dis 
steer the conversation in ways that might be more useful. So you become aware of what your wound is, adjust for it, see if you can guess what their wound might be and adjust for that. So I can give you a couple examples in real life how that sort of thing worked out. Um, and how it works out sometimes is if you can find then a common ground in that conversation about your point of view and my point of view, if you can create a common ground, that really begins the platform for further action. Well, that really that really melts the tension. Right. That, that's the thing that if that common ground, that common, then then you you you're moving away from the feeling of conflict with another person into feeling that there's uh, something the two of you are are working on together or enjoying together, which really might be you know you could think about that in terms of the political world. And I would, I don't know, I might go so far as to say our current president seems to be practicing some of what you're talking about. So, so, so some examples from my experience in real life that I thought might be worth sharing. One was the, uh, the stakeholder process in L.A. County when I was director there. We had a $5 million budget shortage. And so we were told by the, the county administrative office that we needed to make some cuts. So we convened a group to discuss how we should approach this. And on the one side were the contract agencies who believed that the cuts should be absorbed by county staff. And then there were the unions representing the county staff who believed all of the cuts should come from the contract agencies. And so, um, what were we going to do? Because as the director, it's like you can't afford to make enemies of the contractors. You can't afford to make enemies of the unions who represented your own staff. So we had to find a way to come together. And initially, there wasn't much love lost in the verbiage. So what we ended up doing is trying to find those things that we had in common. And what we had in common was that however the cuts were to be taken, they were, should be in line with the goal of the organization. In other words, whatever cuts we took should be taken in such a way that they hurt services to clients the least. So that became the common goal is if we have to cut, how do we do it in a way on both sides that doesn't affect the care we offer to our mentally ill clients and, or affects it as little as possible. And so beginning with that thing we had in common, we both cared about client services. We were able to craft a plan that would have taken the cuts in a way that both sides agreed would uh, cut services the least. And then as the way of the world happened, when the books closed, we actually didn't have a, we didn't have a cut, we had a, a surplus. <laughs> so we didn't need to take those cuts we agreed on, but that process became the route for the stakeholder process that 
decided how we would expend the monies in uh, in the Prop 63, the the uh, Mental Health Services Act. So that process that was developed to handle that seemingly insoluble problem of who's going to be cut became the model for mm. sides that never liked each other before were able to work together for the common goal. So common goal. Yes. The common goal seems to be the ticket uh, where we could find, we could move away from this divisiveness. If right. And so I, I, I think there were some, as you mentioned, President Biden, I think there were some pieces of the infrastructure plan that tried to do that, that tried to find some goal that both the Republicans and the Democrats had in common. And let's start there. Anyway, then the other example I wanted to use was uh, in our mental health and spirituality efforts in LA County, we had a clergy advisory group and the clergy advisory group included uh, rabbis and priests and ministers and imams and uh, Buddhist monks. And so it, it was a group of people that had widely different core beliefs on a whole bunch of different things. And, uh, uh, but we wanted to work together on mental health issues. So as it turned out, whatever differences we may have had in our spiritual beliefs, uh, we had this in common, we, that we believed depression and suicide were a bad thing and that if we could work and use spiritual resources to overcome those, that's something everybody could work together on. And it, it turned out for me personally to be a wonderful experience. Uh, so um, personally, I'd always uh, gotten along very well with Jewish people. As a matter of fact, when I was in the seminary, the uh, rabbinical students, when we had these joint meetings, the rabbinical students and the Catholic seminarians got along better with each other than they did with the evangelical um, uh, <laughs> students. But, but I went to a debate at, on these mental health and spirituality issues at a uh, evangelical college. And we were able in the course of the conversation to come to agreement about how we could work together to um, make depression and um, and suicide less common in our communities. Then uh, in the Muslim community, you know, frankly, I had never really known any Muslims before. And, you know, I probably had some of the same prejudice, prejudicial ideas that are common in our society. But then as it turned out, the uh, Muslim community were very active and I was invited to uh, a number of Muslim religious events uh, for the close of Ramadan and so forth. And I was very impressed by the caring quality and engagement of that community on these issues of, of, uh, of mental illness and also the uh, the the imp importance of spirituality to them, and then finally 
the Buddhists were extraordinarily helpful. They even financed some of our activities so we could get this done. So all of these groups with very different core beliefs had this in common. We believed that we could work together to make um, suicide and mental illness less common. And so I think those kinds of things can really be examples of what we can do first in our, our personal relationships, but maybe even eventually. So how do you, there's a question is, how do we, how do we sell in a sense, how do we sell this to uh, the, you know, the, the greater number of people in our United States society here who are at loggerheads with each other, who are constantly uh, fighting one another to come to realize that actually there's a benefit in finding those common goals. Because even in, in the spiritual group that you were talking about, the, the interfaith uh, clergy council, you know, there were many clergy who probably were very initially very hostile toward the idea of mental health. Some, you know, some clergy felt that uh, that mental health was just something you, you needed to pray and you'll be better until they found that actually in their pastoral counseling, they had resources through the L.A. County Department of Mental Health that could help their congregants and could help them. Yeah, I remember at that at that debate in at the evangelical college, there was a question from the audience that was that was um, if somebody is sad and has depression, why can't the solution be uh, prayer? Why do they why do they need to rely on medication? And then so my answer was, you mean you don't think God provided medication available to human intelligence? So, so, uh, and I think that, that, that's the deal is that all of the resources of humanity should be aimed at finding solutions that make life better. So I think the question you were answering, uh, excuse me, asking Karen was, does the, does this stuff work? Does it work? For example, uh, in familial relationships, because sometimes that is the place where these things can get most destructive because they are places where the need to be right can start to erode uh, personal relationships. So. Absolutely. And you know, I, I just wanna throw in the, the, I don't know, somehow it comes to my mind, I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, the the late yes. wonderful uh, Supreme Court justice and her close and friendly and uh, I would say you know very close friendship with uh, Superior Court Justice Alioto and they had totally opposing ideas on so many issues personally as well as of course professionally that came before the Supreme Court and yet I, I marveled at this friendship that seemed to, you know, continued until the end of his life, uh, which, you know, he died before she did. But, you know, I thought, well, there's an example where they found some way of finding common ground to keep their friendship together, even though they were, you know, having such many, many opposing ideas. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the Bader Ginsburg Scalia friendship is one Scalia, of those. That's right. I made the mistake. Thank you. It wasn't Eliot Scalia. That's right. Uh, is one of the examples where ideology doesn't have to conquer all. And, uh, and I'd say, I'd say with my family and the areas in which we have our political differences, nothing's changed. I think their opinions are the same and certainly mine have not changed. But I think the thing we have been able to do is to um, find those other things that we have in common and concentrate on those things. So for me, the solution has been when the disagreements get heavy, for me not to take it personally, because as I re re said, said before, what other people think of me and the, my, the personal wounds are the hardest for me to, to bear. But if I can not take that personally and just let it go and use my spiritual practice and meditation to try to stay in that place, then the conflict at least doesn't get worse. And so I'm hoping to find a way on the familial level here to make things uh, better in terms of our ability to reason with one another. But if not, at least I think I found a way where I can maintain the positive sides of our relationship and disregard the rest. So if we can multiply that, if we can multiply that approach, uh, as you said, in our personal lives, maybe uh, that that's our only hope. I mean, maybe that's our path forward. Yeah, or at least it's a first step. It, it's a first step and it's a hope. If we can start modeling in our own lives, in our own relationships, the ability to respect opinions that are widely different from ourselves, our own, and not hold those differences um, deep in us as a wound. Point. Well, I think that again, you're you're inspiring us to to have hope, uh, to find some solutions, and I we can only you know have that sense that uh, with time things will be able to resolve themselves. And of course, with the kind of leadership that you've provided and some of the better leadership that we have in our, in our world right now, we can hope for that. Is, is there anything in conclusion that you would like to add that we haven't mentioned today? Uh, I don't think I have any very much to add, uh, Karen, except that this issue of divisiveness is one that will continue um, to plague our society until the time we can focus on a goal that is worthy and useful that people can agree is worth putting our life's energies into. And so, uh, and I think that's been our problem is as even the good things start to get politicized, it's harder to find that common goal that everybody can embrace. Well, perhaps um, we, we could make this a little bit of a habit. Perhaps we'll 
we'll have this conversation again in six months from now and see if any goals have been embraced. Okay. I, and then maybe, Karen, you and I can even think of some more ideas that might be useful. At least uh, we can examine our own lives and see if we found anything that works for us. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Dr. Southard. Thank you for your wisdom and for your determination to make this world a better place. Well, thank you, Karen. I've enjoyed the conversation. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.